Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 337, Chris Date's Search for a Viable Trinity Theory, Part 2. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know about a few things. First of all, the Unitarian Christian Alliance is about to start releasing videos from our first ever conference in October of 2021. And it just so happens that the first of these will be my talk on the original meaning of the prologue of the Gospel according to John. It's the product of many years of study and reflection on that unique New Testament passage. And about the conference, whether you were there or not, you're going to want to hear the UCA podcast episode 36, which is about the conference and the conference organizer, Stacy Berger. You can find that at podcast.unitarianchristianalliance.org. Coming out just a few days after this Trinity's podcast episode, there will be an episode with me. It'll be number 38 of the UCA podcast. It's meant to be a slightly more personal introduction to me as a lead-up to my conference talk. It's a fun and humorous discussion. I think you'll get a kick out of it. I'll put links for these things on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So the next Trinities podcast will be the audio of my deep dive on John 1. That'll come out a couple days after the professionally shot and edited conference video, which honestly, I would recommend that version because of the many dozens of slides that I'm using. And again, UCA Podcast 38 will be an interview with me talking about my religious and spiritual background and sort of how I became a Trinity Theory nerd. And by the way, you're definitely going to want to subscribe to the UCA Podcast. It's a fantastic podcast. It's never boring. It's one that I never miss a single episode of, and I strongly recommend it to you. Lastly, back to the Trinity's podcast, I've had some technical problems behind the scenes. Something is wrong with the podcast RSS feed. I'm trying to fix it. If you had trouble getting the last episode, if you can't get it on Spotify or Google or other places that you may get your podcasts, You can get it at trinities.org and the previous episode, part one of this interaction with the ideas of Chris Date that is working correctly on the YouTube channel as well. So let's get back to Mr. Date's ideas about the Trinity. Last week in part one, we heard the basic moves that Chris Date is making in his search for a Trinity theory which is self-consistent. So as to avoid more than one divine being which is to say, trying to avoid more than one God, Christate suggests that the, quote, persons of the Trinity are something like properties of the one being which is there, the one substance or one entity which is there, which is God. In this episode, he continues to develop the theory, finding some motivation or at least a springboard for his ideas in a social science article. And there's kind of a big twist towards the end. But as we go along, I will, as sympathetically as I can, try to explain what he's thinking, but also highlight what I think are some pretty strong objections to this sort of theology. 
Again, I've edited out a lot, but I've tried to leave in what I thought was essential to the model that he's trying to develop here. So without further ado, again, apologist Chris Date. It seems to me as if some, anyway, psychologists and neuroscientists distinguish between the self as object versus the self as subject. So here's Mateusz Wozniak in an article called I and Me, The Self in the Context of Consciousness, which you can find in uh, Volume 9 of Frontiers in Psychology. It's Article 1656. It's available online. You should be able to find it for free. Mateusz Wozniak writes, Me, in quotes, reflects the phenomenology of selfhood. What that means is the experience of selfhood. But more precisely than that, the composite that is the object of self-experience. So if you say, I am me, me is everything about me. My hands, you know, my body, my mind, whether or not you believe mind is a separate substance or just a property of the one substance that is the body. Either way, me is my body, it's my mind, it's everything I identify as myself, as the object of identification. So me reflects the phenomenology of selfhood, and it's known variously as sense of self, self-consciousness, or phenomenal selfhood. The distinction being made here really you know, doesn't require social science literature. A self, such as you or me, is the subject of experiences. It's the experiencer. So that's what it is for the self to be a subject. And a self, like you or me, can also be an object of thought. So if you're thinking now, you're a subject of thought right now, and you can think about that you're thinking now, say, hmm, I am thinking right now. Now you've made yourself an object of thought at the same time that you're a subject of thought. Yeah, okay. You can be aware, and then you can be thinking about the fact that you're aware. There's only one self involved, of course. But let's see where he's going with this. But... I, like in that statement, I am me, I is rooted in metaphysics of subjectivity. And it refers to the question, why is all conscious experience subjective? And who or what is the subject of conscious experience? Another way to put it is that me refers to understanding of the self as an object of experience, right? The, the self I experience as the object of my experience. While I refers to the self as a subject of experience. Hmm. I mean, this author is grounding a distinction here in supposedly the words me and I. Clearly, me and I are supposed to be co-referential. If I refer to me and then say I, I this or I that, I've just referred to myself in two different ways. Is it really the case that when I say me, I'm referring to myself as an object of experience, and when I say I, I'm referring myself to myself as a subject of experience? I don't know. I'm not sure if this is a correct account of how those words work, but most importantly, what are we really driving at here? What metaphysical help is there here for a trinity theory? Another way Malteus Wozniak puts it is the I is the metaphysical I, the subjectivity inherent to any conscious experience. That's what I want you to key in on here, is that when we talk about self as subject or the metaphysical I, 
What we're talking about is the subjectivity inherent to any conscious experience. I have to wonder here if Chris Date and also the authors of this article are confusing a property of a self for the self. The words I and me, those are supposed to refer to a person, to this person, to myself, to that self, which is Dale Tuggy. That is when I use those words. But subjectivity, that's a quality, right? A quality of what? Of an experience? An experience which is had by a self? A conscious thinking being? But we shouldn't think that this property of subjectivity is a thinker or a self. It's hard to see a good motivation here for thinking that God is multi-personal. That is, that God contains, or in some sense is, multiple selves. Now, I believe it's self-evident that for any conscious experience, there is an experiencer. For any conscious experience, there is someone who has that experience, someone who is the subject of experience. Not all philosophers agree. Some of them will basically just want to get rid of the subject and just talk about persons as if that could be bundles of experiences or bundles of individual properties, tropes, etc. But yes, it seems like a true and important point that wherever there is a first-person subjective experience, there is a conscious thing which is having that experience. Let's not confuse any of the experiences or features of experiences with the haver of the experiences. So at this juncture, Mr. Date gives us a video game-inspired thought experiment. Thought experiments are conceivable and seemingly possible but non-actual situations that philosophers use in order to make some conceptual point. If you say, hey, that's fictional, or hey, that's imaginary, yeah, but that's missing the point. It's trying to show some necessary connection between things or some sort of possibility So I'm going to summarize a bit here. He gets a little long-winded. He shows a couple of screens from a first-person shooter game, you know, where you're running around gunning down dudes or monsters. It's like Doom and countless later copycat games. So you're running around in some virtual world, and you see your gun sticking out, right? It's supposed to be a vision through the eyes of the character. Then he hits a key on the keyboard, and it switches to... It's like there's a camera floating behind his dude with a gun, and uh, you know now he can see the dude running around. So he's switching between the subjective experience of that character, and now when the camera moves to the back, he's viewing the character as if it was a third person. But really, I think all it amounts to is distinguishing between a self and a perspective or experience of that self. So in the game, you could turn on both cameras at once, the one that goes through the eyes of the dude running around in the virtual world, and also the camera that's behind him, you know, hovering behind him. And he's basically saying, what if one and the same self, one and the same subject could experience the world in both ways at once? So there would be multiple perspectives at the same time, multiple standpoints, different viewpoints simultaneously. And if there could be two perspectives at the same time, why not three? All right, I mean, it's not too hard to imagine. 
if you had eyes coming out of your butt, you could see forwards and backwards at the same time. And presumably just your perceptual field would uh, have some complexity that our visual field, the way we're built now, it doesn't have. And in the case of any ordinary creature, in the case of any creature, period, with the possible exception of people who have dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder, in any creature that is personal, there is only one subjectivity of self uh, of conscious experience. But what if at the exact same time, there are three subjectivities of experience? Right? So here is the same basic clip, but played from three different subjectivities, th three different perspectives. You're seeing at the same time what is seen through the eyes of the character running around. And there's one camera behind him where you can see him running around. And then there's another camera with a different angle behind him. So there's one person playing the game and he's playing one fictional character in the game world but he's interacting with this fictional world simultaneously from three different perspectives. So conceptually, this seems perfectly logical. You've got three subjectivities, three selves as subject, three experiencers, three subjectivities inherent to conscious experience, Wait, what? but just one self as object. The same, it, this is especially plausible if we're dealing with the infinite being of God. See, the problem with the analogy here is that each subjectivity is experiencing only a subset of the whole being's conscious experience, right? So the first person is seeing this part of conscious experience, and then the, the second one is like from over the head, and the other one is from down here. They're seeing parts of their 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 experiencing parts of the, of the conscious experience. So, so it breaks down. But in the infinite being of God, the boundless conscious experience of God can conceivably have multiple subjectivities. Did you catch that? Seems like he's not properly distinguishing a self from a perspective had by a self. Just to replay a bit, I think the confusion is right on the face of this statement. Three experiencers, three subjectivities inherent to conscious experience. No, a point of view is not an experiencer, that is to say, a subject of experience. A point of view is not a self. A point of view is something which a self has. Now, on his screen, he has a screenshot of the video game with those three perspectives displayed at once. So you're seeing through the gun-carrying guy's eyes, then you're seeing from behind him, so you can see his back, and then there's another perspective from a slightly different angle in the back. Now, what he has on the screen is that there are three selves as subject and one self as object. No, what this is would be one subject experiencing himself in three different ways. He's only seen his gun and his location in the first way. In the other way, he's seen himself from behind and then seen himself from another angle behind. There's only one subject here. And there's nothing about creaturehood or finitude that requires that we only have one point of view at once. With maybe some advanced technology, we could give a person multiple points of view at the same time. They embed some chips in your brain. There are two drones flying around near you. Maybe they include you in the shot and they're sending signals to those chips in your brain. And now you're seeing things, yes, from behind your eyes, but 
also somehow at the same time you're seeing things from this angle and from that angle wherever those drones are. Maybe your visual field is divided into three parts, as in his example. Or maybe somehow it's not, and you can just keep in your consciousness all three perspectives. So there's nothing about having multiple perspectives that requires being divine or being infinite. Even a mere human person like you or I might, in various ways, have multiple perspectives at the same time. But the really big mistake here, I think, is confusing a perspective with the experiencer who has that perspective. In our little thought experiment, it wouldn't be that there is one experiencer of what's coming through the eyes, and there's another experiencer of what's coming from this drone, and another experiencer of what's coming from that drone. The thought experiment just is that there's one and the same self who's receiving visual images from these three perspectives at once. There aren't three selves there. There aren't three subjects there. There's one subject there with three perspectives. And a perspective is not a person. It's something had by a person. A perspective is a state of consciousness. It's had by a conscious being. But the important confusion, again, is between an experiencer and one of these perspectives or experiences. You ought not collapse the two. So if God can have multiple perspectives at once, which if you're omniscient and omnipotent, why couldn't you? It doesn't follow that God is multiple persons. He could just be a super-duper subject, a super-duper self, which can have three, maybe way more than three perspectives at the same time. He would just be able to have a much more complicated mental life. It doesn't follow that God would be multiple persons. But that's what he's thinking. Just as an aside, analytic philosopher and theologian Linda Zagzebski has argued that a perfect being must not only be omniscient, where that's understood as knowing the truth value of all propositions, but also must enjoy what she calls the property of omnisubjectivity. In her words, it is, quote, the property of consciously grasping with perfect accuracy and completeness the first-person perspective of every conscious being, end quote. I find this plausible, and I also believe in a unipersonal God who is perfect in knowledge. And I think that does entail seeing the facts that there are from all the different perspectives that there are. If you're curious and you want to read more about that, I'll put a link to her paper called Omnisubjectivity on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Okay, so let's pick it up where he's discussing these points of view or whatever these features of experience are, and he's discussing them as tropes, as individual qualities, because he thinks plausibly that it's problematic to suppose that they're universal qualities. Since a trope subsists in being and is not a part of it, is not you, it's not like you can take uh, well, a concrete substance theory. and, and break, part, uh, uh, break part of it into one property and part of it into another, right? Uh, take, for example, a door, the hardness of a door. A door, you can split into multiple parts. Uh, you can say there's the top half and the bottom half. But the top half's hardness just is the hardness of the bottom half. 
Mm, that doesn't seem right. The door might lose one of those properties he mentioned whilst still having the other. And so, therefore, they can't be the same property. The hardness of the top half of the door versus the hardness of the lower half of the door. Right? Imagine that it's a plastic door. You get a paint stripping gun. Basically, it's like a hair dryer that gets a lot hotter. And using this hot air, you soften the top part of the door, but not the bottom part. Okay, so then, if there are such things as tropes, it looks like the hardness of the top half of the door could be lost, while the hardness of the bottom half of the door remains. So then, no, they wouldn't seem to be one quality of hardness. But okay, maybe it's a flawed example, but what's he really getting at theologically? So, likewise, it, the subjectivity of a conscious experience, it's not a part of the substance in which it subsists. It's a, it's a property of the whole substance. And there doesn't seem to be anything illogical, even if it is really hard to wrap our minds around because it's so unlike our own universal human experience. There's no logical reason why you couldn't have three subjectivities that subsist in the one being of God, provided that they are abstract particulars and not universal abstracts. Sure, but this is something that a Unitarian can say. This is just a different way of saying that God might be able to have multiple points of view, multiple perspectives at the same time, which doesn't require being multiple persons. It's something that a super-duper person might pull off. In fact, it doesn't even seem very hard for a single person to pull off because we can imagine a limited, crummy little being like you or me having multiple perspectives at once. As in my thought experiment with the two GoPros mounted in two drones flying around. And so you experience the world in a threefold way, like in Chris Date's video game analogy where there are three sections to the screen, each showing a different point of view. So it's an interesting point about divine powers, but it's hard to see that there's any help here whatsoever for a Trinitarian. So this is what I think we Trinitarians mean by God is three who's and one what. <laughs> what Trinitarians mean? Um, hmm. Let's be serious here. When Trinitarians say God is three who's and one what... It's quite unclear what's being said. That's a slogan from recent apologetics. It's not even a part of traditional Catholic orthodoxy. But this is compatible with really any Trinity theory. But I would encourage our friend Chris State to actually go around and ask a bunch of Trinitarians if this is in fact what they mean when they say that God is three persons, but one essence or being, or when they say that God is one what, but three who's. How many of them will agree with this theory that he's developing? I don't know what the percentage is myself, but I am quite sure that it's not going to be all of them, and I'm not even sure if it would be most of them. To say the Father is God is to say an abstract particular known as the Father, one metaphysical I or subjectivity of conscious experience, subsists in God's one substance. Right, here's the confusion that I was pointing out a minute ago. To have the Father be abstract 
that seems wrong because it seems like the father needs to be able to be a cause and effect. To say that the father is an abstract particular in the sense of a particular property, that also seems wrong. The father seems like a being who has properties, not a mere property of something. But never mind that. Never mind all those problems. He says the father is a metaphysical I, right? In other words, an experiencer. And he says, or subjectivity of conscious experience. Wait, those are not the same thing. One experiencer can have multiple subjectivities of conscious experience, which is to say multiple perspectives. So you shouldn't confuse a perspective with a person who might have that perspective and perhaps others. It seems like he's saying that to say the Father is God means that God is experiencing things in a fatherly way from, from a fatherly perspective or something like that which wouldn't preclude his experiencing things from the standpoint of a son and a spirit. Okay, but this is all things that a unipersonal God might do, because a perspective is not a person. A perspective is something a person has. And even a limited, finite human person might have multiple perspectives at the same time, as best we can tell. But again, to spin this as just what Trinitarians mean is, to put it gently, not plausible. I do think, though, that there is a truth in the area nearby, which is that many, possibly a majority of educated Trinitarians, if they have a Trinity theory, they do tend towards a oneself theory, which is the general sort of Trinity theory our friend Chris Date is suggesting for our consideration. But the abstract particulars known as the Son and the Spirit equally subsist in God's one substance. These four bullets here, I think I'm trying to say is what I'm offering as the model of the Trinity that I think is both orthodox and logically coherent. The first way of okay, here's modeling the summary. this out is to say that in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, P is a trope or abstract particular and is means something like subsists in the being of, and in a statement like P1 is not P2, is means not identical to. And then thirdly, to say the Father is God is to say an abstract particular known as the Father, one metaphysical I, or subjectivity of conscious experience, subsists in God's one substance, and the abstract particulars known as the Son and the Spirit equally subsist in God's one substance. This is what I think is a logically coherent and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And when he says abstract particulars, he means particular properties. So what he's saying is that the persons of the Trinity are properties of God. They're features or attributes that God has. Now think about that for a second. Look at the New Testament. The Father speaks to the Son, and the Son speaks to the Father. Can an attribute speak to another attribute? The Father and Son cooperate together. Can two properties cooperate with one another? Does that even make any sense at all? Is that a metaphysical possibility? The Son loves the Father and obeys Him. Can one attribute of an object love and obey another attribute of that object? I don't think so. I think the suggestion is nonsensical. The persons of the Trinity it seems, and this is granting everything that Trinitarians want to say about the Bible, the persons of the Trinity should not turn out to be mere attributes or properties or qualities of God. 
this is a point that social Trinitarians would hammer, and I think they're correct. Mere attributes are not subjects of experience. Subjects of experience or selves are what has attributes, and specifically distinctively mental attributes like intentions, desires, memories, and points of view. If the only substance between the Father and Son is God, right, then the Father and Son are just two properties, or maybe two perspectives, had by the one God. So the Father loving the Son will just be God in one aspect, loving himself in another aspect, or something like that. The Father talking to the Son will just be God in one aspect, talking to himself in another aspect. So you don't have real interpersonal relationships between the Father and Son. If the Father and Son turn out to be the kinds of things that couldn't possibly stand in interpersonal relationships, namely features, attributes, qualities, properties. Frankly, it seems like a pretty disastrous Trinity theory, and one that is just never going to fit well with the New Testament picture of the interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Date revisits his criteria for a theology being orthodox to see if this theory should count as orthodox. I've already said that when I say the Father is God, what I'm saying is the abstract particular known as the Father, that particular metaphysical I or a subjectivity inherent to conscious experience subsists in the being of God. And I'm saying the same thing about the Son. Another abstract particular, this one, the metaphysical I or or subjectivity inherent to conscious experience known as the Son, subsists in the being of God. And similarly, number three, the Spirit is a third abstract particular a metaphysical I or subjectivity of conscious experience known as a spirit that subsists in the being of God. Right, so let me say something positive about this Trinity theory that he's concocted. It is monotheistic. It's unambiguously monotheistic. The only being in the picture here is God, as he wants to say, the one substance. Now what about this Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, they're just attributes or properties of that one God. So they can't be three gods. A god is not a property. Again, the divine persons are just attributes of God. So yeah, there's only one god in the picture. They really are three different attributes. So the father is not son, is not spirit. And so just going by the basic criteria one through five, there's no problem. Except that we've completely forgotten the New Testament. And the picture is a terrible fit with the New Testament. What it says just does not fit at all with the Father and Son being two properties. To the contrary, the Father and Son are selves that enjoy a loving interpersonal relationship, the kind of relationship that cannot exist between properties, any kind of properties. 
Another conceptual point is that, in principle, a god can't be a mere property or attribute. But that's what the Father is in the New Testament. He's the one God. He's our God. He's the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And these claims are made not only clearly, but they're even made explicitly. Again, a man, a human being, can't be a mere property. But that's what sort of thing the Son explicitly is in the New Testament. In the laudable desire to avoid polytheism, the theory has demoted each of these to less than a substance, to less than a being or entity, making them mere properties of one such being, God. But again, in the New Testament, each of these, the Father, that is to say God, and Jesus, the man, who is the Son of God, each of these has properties which only a self can have, that is to say an intelligent substance, a thinking thing. So one, two, and three fits. What I've offered affirms all three of those statements. All right, so he says there's no problem with the statements, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, except there is this little problem that most Trinitarians probably will reject understanding the Father is God, etc., as attributing an attribute to God. In other words, probably most Trinitarians will reject spinning the three persons as three individual properties or attributes of God. So, yeah, he has an interpretation of these first three statements on which they would be consistent with what he means by four. But whether it's orthodox is, uh, well, most Trinitarians are probably going to say it's not. A lot of people, I think, understand those three statements to either be identifying each person with God or at least to be saying that that person is fully divine. But a mere attribute isn't and, in principle, can't be fully divine. Being fully divine entails, for instance, being perfectly morally good and being omniscient. But these imply being a self, and just conceptually, a property cannot be a self. Number four, they share one substance. Well, that's what I've just said. The being of God is one. There is only one being of God. And in that one being of God subsist these three subjectivities of conscious experience that are abstract particulars. They have no concrete being on their own. They subsist in, as abstract particulars of, the one, substa- the one substance that is right. God. So, so the we, conscious thing is God. Criterion number four. The one self is really God. Criterion number five. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. Remember, what I've said is that in statements like P is S, which would be the statements of one, two, and three here, is means subsists in the being of. In the statement, the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, I'm using is to mean is identical to, and I'm saying it's not. So the Father, P1, is not P2, is not identical to P2, even though both P1 and P2 are both equally God in the sense of subsisting in the being of God. So what I've offered meets criterion number five. Did you catch that? These three are equally divine in that they're equally attributes of God. So, they're not terribly divine, really. They're going to have to be a lot less than fully divine. Being a divine attribute, I think, would entail that the thing exists eternally. 
But it seems to me that being an attribute of God, being a way God is or a feature had by God, entails that one is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnibenevolent. And those are pretty important divine attributes, don't you think? Well, what about criteria num- number six? Son and spirit logic are logically contingent on the Father. Well, there's nothing that would, as far as I can tell, preclude one trope from being dependent upon another, logically. Yeah, a thing might have one attribute because it has another attribute, sure. There's nothing that seems to preclude one property from being logically dependent upon another, or Mm -hmm. one trope from being logically dependent upon another. Yeah, sure. And then what about seven? They're not parts of a divisible substance. Well, whether or not individual properties or tropes are going to count as parts of a divisible substance is going to depend on the metaphysical theory in question. Again, many trope theorists are trying to get rid of these substances and say they're nothing more than just collections of tropes. So then they wouldn't be parts of those things because there aren't such things. But yeah, if you've taken the drastic step of reducing the persons of the Trinity to mere properties, then if you have a theory on which properties are not parts of the thing that they're in, then the persons of the Trinity are not going to be parts of the thing they're in, in virtue of being its properties. Doesn't seem to be a real problem there. So the model that I've offered, as far as I can tell meets these seven criteria and others that may come up in our debate. In fact, I'll play one more card. In his debate with Dr. James White, the Muslim metaphysician said that one criterion of an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity would be to say that the Son is ase. The Son has aseity or or is necessary. Mm-hmm. It's required by full divinity. Whereas an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, as I've extracted from the creeds, says that the Son and Spirit logically are contingent upon the Father. Right, which rules out aseity for the Spirit and the Son, yeah. Those creeds, so far as I can tell, don't say that each that any one individual person of God is ase. In fact, the Athanasian Creed, if I'm remembering correctly, says the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. But there are not, not three eternals, but one. And it says the, the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated. And yet there are not three uncreated, but one. It says that. How do you make sense of that? You make sense of that by saying that the attribute, the divine attribute of aseity, is an attribute of the being of God. It's not an attribute of any person of God. The creed just said that each of those is, for instance, eternal. So you can't interpret that creed as saying, actually, the persons aren't eternal, but rather this being of God is. Now, sometimes if a thing has a feature, therefore a certain property of that thing will have that same feature. But this doesn't follow in all cases. Right, I love pizza, but my weighing 200 pounds doesn't love pizza. But try another case. So I am in this room, therefore my weighing 200 pounds is in this room. If you think that my weight is an individual and locatable thing, such as a trope. Now, what about the case of God and divine aseity? What is aseity? 
property of aseity, roughly speaking, is supposed to be the quality of existing because of oneself and not because of anything else. Now, conceivably, a thing might exist independently and not because of anything else, and yet one of its qualities might exist because of something else. So, if God exists and is ase, still you might think consistently with that, that he has the property of being angry at you right now because you just teased your little sister a few minutes ago. He would exist ase or independently, and yet a quality of his would exist because of something else. So it's not clear that because the being of God has aseity, therefore the Son would have it. But suppose that it did follow. If it did follow, this would conflict with Mr. Date's speculation that the Son property exists because of the Father property. Remember, that's his spin on the traditional language about eternal generation. Again, to exist ase is to exist through oneself and not because of anything else. But if the Son has a kind of metaphysical dependence on the Father, or if you can say the Son exists because of the Father, then the Son, according to this generation doctrine, won't be ase. So, yeah, there's kind of problems every way you turn here, I think. At any rate, it seems to me that Mr. Date has not noticed that he's just conceded that on his theory, God will be divine in a way that none of the persons is divine, which conflicts with the traditional view that each of the persons is fully divine. Making them equally divine, yes, that's part of the traditional aim as well, but that's not enough if none of them is fully divine. So you can say simultaneously that the Son is logically dependent upon the Father, because you can say that one trope depends upon another. But you could also say that the Son has aseity, because the Son is God. The Son subsists in the being of God. And the divine attribute of aseity is attributable of the being of God, not an abstract particular that subsists in it. Uh, well, it sounded like he just said that the sun would be Asse and not. So we wanted to say that only, quote, the being of God, or rather just God, only God has Asseity, because that's required by full divinity. And the sun, per se, being a trope, being a mere attribute, will not have all the divine attributes, including Asseity. So, just because the Son is an attribute in God, and God has aseity, doesn't seem to follow that the Son would have it just by being an attribute of His. So, it sounded like he just said the Son would exist ase because the Son's an attribute of God, but that seems like it doesn't follow. But then also, actually, it's just only God that exists ase. This doesn't make any sense, but the most important point is that if full divinity requires aseity, and you don't ascribe aseity to the persons, then you're not ascribing full divinity to the persons. They're going to be something less divine than God, it looks like. In fact, if they're mere attributes, they're way less divine than God. A feature, a property, can't be all-powerful, all-knowing, morally good, can't have plans and carry them out. 
any intentional action that you might want to ascribe to the persons. Because the persons are mere properties, you're going to have to end up saying, well, really, that's God doing that. Maybe this feature of God is involved somehow, but God is the one intelligent agent here in the picture. So even if you take an eighth truth on this list as being required for orthodoxy, namely that the son is ase, you can still do that, provided that you accept really. what I think pretty much all theologies will tell you, which is that the, pro- the, the divine attribute of aseity subsists, uh, is, is attributable, to the, attributable to the being of God. Because again, what does a creed say? The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal, but there are not three eternals, there's one. So it seems to fit that. This is why oneself Trinitarians tend to be those Trinitarians who love the Athanasian Creed. Because it does make it sound like really there's only one thing in the Trinity, and that thing is God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about the alleged divine attribute of simplicity? Now Chris Tate decides to speculate on the topic of divine simplicity, and on this topic, I strongly recommend the work of Dr. Ryan Mullins. He's brought a lot of clarity and careful critical thinking to a lot of theologians' sloppy talk about this traditional doctrine of divine simplicity. But in brief, divine simplicity is not just a claim that God lacks parts, where parts are concrete objects that combine together to make a whole composed of those parts. But divine simplicity actually requires that there aren't any distinctions in God, including distinctions between different attributes of God. It collapses all of those into God. So he's going to say, hey, I think God could be partless, so divine simplicity could be true if God has these three attributes. But honestly, this shows that he doesn't understand traditional, granted, very out there ideas about what is implied by divine simplicity according to the medieval proponents of divine simplicity. Again, I'll put some links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can hear Dr. Mullins very carefully explaining all that simplicity implies. So as far as I can tell, even if you add those two truths, eight and nine, eight being the sun is ase, and nine being the substance of God is simple and indivisible, Even if you do that, it seems like the model I've offered is it affirms all these criteria, or at the very least can affirm all these criteria for an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And at the same time, it's logically coherent. Because there's nothing logically incoherent by saying that one concrete entity is subsisted in by three abstract particulars. Well, why would there be anything incoherent about one thing having three different qualities? We experience innumerable things that have three or more qualities. That's kind of a no-brainer. But again, 
you've just reduced the persons of the Trinity to qualities. But I think our friend Chris Tate senses that such a reduction is ridiculous. The persons are either the tropes themselves or the composite of the trope and its being. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) He just made a major change. Let me replay that for you. The persons are either the tropes themselves or the composite of the trope and its being. Did you hear that? What I'll argue, at least what I'm tentatively planning on arguing, is that either the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each just those abstract particulars, the subjectivities inherent to conscious experience, that each subsists in the one being of God. Total non-starter. In which case, the persons are what those... Remember remember what I showed you, those um, uh, neuroscientists and psychologists, the distinction they make between self as object and self as subject? No, right, so either really the help. persons that are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each self a self as subject. Right, that would be the trope. They're not the selves at the all. They're attributes of a experience. self. Like I said, the 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 um, persons are self as subject, whereas the substance is self as object. Or person refers to the composite of both the object itself, the concrete substance and the subjectivity, the abstract particular that corresponds to that particular person. So in that case, it would be something like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are each the same substance that is God and the particular abstract particular that, that it's referring to. So that's what I would argue. They are either the selves as subject, each of them, or the compound of self as subject and self as object. Okay, so up to this point, he's been talking about the persons of the Trinity as if they were so many attributes of God, which seems like a terrible idea for many reasons, as I've explained. Now, you know, more than an hour and 10 minutes into this video podcast, he says, well, maybe that's what I mean, or I mean that a divine person is God and one of these attributes together. This is a different theory completely because it doesn't reduce the persons of the Trinity to properties. What this would say the Father is, is not a certain property or subjectivity of God. But the Father would now be God together with this property. Okay, now we're talking about a self. Because God, in his view, that's the subject of experience. That's the doer of any actions that are involved here, right? So now when he's talking about the Father, he is talking about a self, namely God, but God in conjunction with this point of view or subjectivity or conscious experience or something like that. Okay, then when you refer to the Son, you're referring to that same one, God, still conceived of as a self, but now it's God as the subject of this other set of experiences, this other perspective. God is having this other perspective And then the Holy Spirit, again, it's the same one we referred to twice before, but now we're referring to it by way of or in combination with uh, a different property than before. It's a totally different theory because now when you talk about the Father, you're talking about a divine person, namely God. When you talk about the Son, you're talking about a divine person also, the same one that we just mentioned before, the Father. 
they're both just God. You're using father to refer to God as subject of this one bunch of experiences, and you're calling God the son as God is subject of these other experiences. My point before, when he was reducing persons to mere attributes, is that it's really a one-self trinity theory. You can talk about multiple persons all you want, but all he means by persons in that version of the theory is different attributes of God, right? The one self that's there, the experiencer, the intelligent agent, the one with intellect and will, that's God. There's only one of those. Okay, so it's a one-self trinity theory. What look like three selves actually on that theology turn out not to be selves. They turn out to be three properties of the one divine self, which is God. And as I mentioned, this just runs smack against the New Testament portrayal of the interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son, which requires each to be a person, so it violates that, and also it requires them to be two different persons, so it violates that too. It's a New Testament fail. But now, he's saying, well, maybe I don't mean that, maybe I mean that the Father is God together with this attribute, and the Son is God together with this other attribute. Okay. However, it's still a one-self trinity theory. Again, what might look like three different selves, three different persons, really turn out to be one person viewed in three different ways or having three different properties or three different aspects or something. So on this other theory that he's suggesting, the Father and the Son, each one of those is a self, namely God. Right, because the term father means God in this property, and the term son means God in that property. So you're referring to a person both times, namely God. When you say the father, you're referring to a person. When you say the son, you're referring to a person. The problem is you're referring to the same person, namely God. They're not different persons, and so they can't have an interpersonal relationship with one another. Now, there's a difference between them. Right, God plus this property, in a sense, is different from God and that other property. If I, as husband, could have a conversation with uh, myself as employee, yeah, okay, but it's really just me having a conversation with myself, right? And two different of my attributes are involved. I can adopt the perspective of a husband and say, Dale, you shouldn't work so much. And then Dale, as employee, could say, you're right, Dale, as husband, you need to work less. You need to spend more quality time with your wife. Okay, but that's just Dale talking to himself. That's not an interaction between two different selves, two different persons. All the father-son interaction in the New Testament would be of that kind. Again, that seems like a disaster. They don't seem to be one and the same self manifesting or living or existing in two different ways. They seem like two selves that love one another, cooperate with one another, One submits to the other, worships the other. The other one honors him back. Yeah, I mean, these are interpersonal relationships. These are relations between two selves. And this Trinity theory in either version goes hard against those New Testament facts. And I want to know where I've gone wrong, if in fact I have gone wrong. I'll give you... Uh, an to help, my friend. Where you might hone in, and I offer this to Jake and to anybody else that's watching. I was discussing with a professional philosopher my proposal here before I'd heard of tropes. And I said, what if the persons are properties rather than substances? 
And he said, well, I have some concerns around the person's being properties. Right. Uh, Many probably, concerns. I think he said that because properties classically defined are universals. Mm, that's one said, reason. But maybe if instead of a property, you uh, say the persons are tropes, well, then you might be going somewhere. But but he's still reluctant to go there. Because they so could be individual causes a, and effects. Um, yeah. f- a, a fatal flaw maybe. in my model located specifically in understanding the persons to be tropes or the trope plus the substance exemplifying that trope. Maybe there's where a flaw is. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't see a flaw there. So I don't know. Let me know if you can think of anything. Mr. Day then launches into some general musings about Christians and philosophy and so on. I'm going to pass most of that by. But then he comes back to the subject of the Trinity. And here he's referring to a debate online between Dr. James White and this fellow who calls himself Jake the Muslim metaphysician. And really, Jake embarrassed James White. James White couldn't answer just very basic questions about whatever Trinity theory he was supposedly offering. Chris Date, without insulting his hero, James White, makes the point here that James White just had no answers. He's just coming back with traditional language and sort of pounding the table that this is what Scripture says without any real attention given to the content of his claims. In a debate with a Unitarian, if you say, if they ask you, when you say the Father is God, um, are you using the is of predication or the is of, of identity? And you say it's irrelevant. No, it's not irrelevant. You may not be able to articulate a logically coherent model that encapsulates the truth, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not each other. But don't pretend as if that doesn't come across as simply logically incoherent. And if somebody charges you your view with being logically incoherent, it will not do to say that I can't understand God because we do affirm that God is logical. Right, as in there are no contradictions implied by his existence. When the Trinity's podcast returns... How Chris Date importantly differs from apologists like James White or Matt Slick. Going back to Trinity's podcast 302, The Stages of Trinitarian Commitment, our friend Mr. Date is definitely not at the first stage where most Trinitarians are at of being what I call a paper Trinitarian. In his mind, he's at stage two, a defender of, quote, the Trinity. That's where he thinks he is. He thinks he's in the same place as people like Dr. James White. But in fact, He has moved on from being a mere defender of the Trinity to being what I call an interpreter of the Trinity. He's trying to give an intelligible interpretation of the traditional sentences, uh, such that it all comes out consistent and hopefully a lot more than just consistent, like, you know, fitting well with the Bible and being overall reasonable. 
So he's at the same stage as a lot of Christian philosophers are at, people like William Hasker and Richard Swinburne, Brian Leftow, and me around the turn of the millennium. And he points out here that people like White are just ignoring obvious problems. All of us humans want to get as many true beliefs as we can and avoid false beliefs as much as we can. One way that we find false beliefs, crucially, is to look out for contradictions. If we see P and not P, we know, well, both of those can't be true. So any theory which requires both P and not P, well, that theory is not true. It must have falsehood within it. And it seems rather careless, as Chris Date is about to point out, to just say, well, I don't know, the parent contradiction doesn't seem to bother me too much. So my urging to you is welcome the opportunity, nay, the responsibility to do your best to make logically coherent sense of the things that you believe. Amen. Because if you cannot, and if you say, I, I just accept it and I can't make sense of it, then you will be failing to remove an obstacle to your interlocutor's embracing of the Messiah. And as we Christians believe, the world is dying and they need, mm -hmm. the world needs the life that only Christ has to offer. Right. But do they and need a trinity you tell theory? One, one among the dying world who is objecting to your belief on the grounds of logical incoherence that you just, you can't explain it. You just believe it. Well, I get the sentiment. I do. But how are you helping your interlocutor? You're not. Because that's a very common way for evaluating whether something could possibly be true. Is it logically incoherent? And if you tell an, uh, an atheist, a Unitarian heretic, or a Unitarian Muslim who objects to the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, Trinity on the grounds that it's logically incoherent, if you tell them that, that, that I can't make sense of it, I just accept it because what the Bible says, well, you may be being pious, but are you being loving? Yeah, and you may have a garbage interpretation of the Bible. You're interpreting the Bible just as contradicting itself if you are saying that it is teaching these incoherent claims. Are you availing yourself to the Lord's use of you as an agent to bring about the repentance, faith, and salvation of your interlocutor? And the answer is no, you're not. I mean, it's, I suppose it's possible. Maybe they'll be moved by your piousness, by your piety. Maybe, but probably not. They'll probably... Say, yeah, that's what I thought. I'll move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they want truth. So consider the model I've offered here today. It's a little difficult to wrap one wrap your mind around. It's really too. It's theories, not the usual okay. way we think of person. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can tell, it's logically coherent and it's doctrinally orthodox. Although it's making our brains begin to melt, it actually does make some sense. So yeah, he's at the interpreter of the Trinity stage. What he hasn't done is go on to step four, what I call being a Berean Trinitarian, saying, yeah, I'm committed to the doctrine of the Trinity. Maybe I'm not quite sure what that means. Maybe it means this, or maybe it means that. But anyway, I think I need to go back to Scripture and re-examine, does Scripture really require some theory of this nature? That is what Chris Date is unwilling to do. He has a swagger and a confidence here that I really, I can't explain. I can't account for it. This is what he says. There are basically two kinds of debates on the Trinity that I've encountered. 
There are either debates focused on the text. So the Trinitarian will argue from the text in support of the Trinity, the Unitarian from the text in support of, of, the uni, of, of a Unitary view of God. And in those debates, the Trinitarian always wins because the Unitarian <laughs> has no biblical legs to stand on. I'm wow. sorry. I'm sorry, Dale Tuggy. I'm sorry, <laughs> Sam. I'm sorry, Unitarians that might be watching this. Biblically, you stand on no ground. <laughs> Don't feel sorry for me, Chris. Interact with Trinity's podcast 189 and the arguments therein. Or if you like the arguments of podcast 334, Who Do You Say I Am? I think those are relevant. And especially the arguments of podcast 260, How to Argue That the Bible is Trinitarian. There's a swagger and a confidence here that I think, honestly, you've inherited from people like James White and Matt Slick that really runs contrary to the actual facts of the case. So I would say, let's see you take down the arguments for the Unitarian side in some detail, which should be a pretty easy thing to do if indeed there is an open and shut case for the Trinity from the Bible rather than just assert that Unitarians can say nothing remotely reasonable in favor of their cause, biblically speaking. Again, the opening statement of my debate with Michael Brown, why don't you interact with that in detail and show where it goes wrong, and show why it amounts to nothing biblically? If you do this and you really digest our side of the arguments, that could turn you into a Trinitarian Berean who's re-examining whether or not Scripture really requires any Trinity theory at all. But there is another kind of debate, and I dare say that somebody of whom I'm a large fan, large not just physically, but in terms of being a big fan, uh, and that's Dr. James White, in his debates with Unitarians, the debate is more like one person talking about the text and the other talk person talking about logic, and that's what the debate was like between James White and... Not logic, but metaphysician. the problems of James the Trinity White's theories. case was exclusively biblical, and I... Praise right. him for that. And not Great. theological. I love, that I love that that's his emphasis, and his, that's where mine is too. But if you're going to agree to a debate with a Unitarian whose focus is not going to be on the text of Scripture, but is going to be instead on the focus of logic. Which tells me that he hasn't paid too much attention to actual debates by actual Unitarian Christians, people like me or Sean Finnegan. Because for people like us, quote, logic or maybe rather philosophical theories. No, those are not the basis for our views about God being the Father alone. Then what happens is the Trinitarian's biblical case seems sound, mm. but they seem to be running or putting their head in the sand in the face of a logical challenge. Which is a challenge for their interpretations of Scripture that they're suggesting. And that, I think, makes the doctrine of the Trinity look bad. It makes Christendom look bad. Mm -hmm. If we as Trinitarians are going to agree to debate philosophically-minded Unitarians, let's grab the bull by its horns and do careful philosophy. Sure. Absolutely. That's what I've tried to offer here today. Yes. To what extent I've succeeded, yes, I'll leave it up I, to you. I appreciate and it. And I will stop rambling at, at this point. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. They're just in response to Chris Date's invitation for feedback on his Trinity theory, or rather two different Trinity theories that he's suggesting. I'm suggesting that they're pretty problematic, specifically as concerns 
the contents of New Testament teaching about the Father and the Son. Do they have logical problems? Well, there are problems of coherence, yes. It's not clear that either theory is going to well represent what it is that Trinitarians are trying to get at. So, for instance, a social Trinitarian like William Hasker would make many of the same points that I've been making in this episode. And yet, he is still in the Trinitarian camp, like Chris Date. This brings us back to the fact that it's essentially a camp in favor of Orthodox tradition and Orthodox language. There isn't really any developed theology that they all have in common. They have a bunch of dueling, clashing theologies, each of which is sort of hoping to be what Trinitarian tradition has really been trying to get at. But none of which is what all or most Trinitarians actually think. They think a whole bunch of different things. The tradition voice all this heavy language on them that's very difficult to interpret, doesn't give much help as to interpreting that language, and then you're kind of on your own to interpret it. And maybe you just throw up your hands and say it's a mystery and just you know convince yourself that confusion is a natural and good state for a Christian to be in. Or you go down the road of being an interpreter of these traditional Trinity sentences. And that's what Mr. Date and, for instance, Dr. Hasker are both trying to do, coming up, of course, with very different attempted solutions. I want to make clear that I admire Chris Date for thinking out loud, for showing a lot of his hand to his debate opponent before the debate, thus exposing himself to refutation, and I appreciate the truth-seeking behind this procedure. He's saying we can't just sit content with apparent contradictions. We should see if we can get rid of the contradictions by understanding these theories in a certain way. That's all, as far as it goes, well and good. I encourage him to try out all the Trinity theories. That's what I did. And eventually, when I did that long enough, it got me frustrated enough because I could see the heavy problems that all of these theories had in different ways, biblical problems, philosophical problems, etc. And this eventually made me to reconsider, hey, does scripture actually commit us to this whole project? Or could you just as well be a Christian and leave aside this whole morass of fruitless and unending and clashing speculations? I think you should try every single theory on for size. Go out there and defend a social trinity theory in a debate, a three-self theory. Go out there and defend relative identity. Go out there and defend a Mysterian approach. Try them all. If you keep thinking, you'll see there are pretty serious problems with them all. Then maybe you'll be willing to consider that this is a waste of human energy and that nothing about the New Testament gospel requires any such theory. I know that sounds incredible to one who's convinced that, hey, the Bible obviously implies that God is a trinity in some sense. But I have been in Chris Date's shoes. I have been someone with that traditional assumption about the Bible. I have been that guy trying out these different trinity theories and saying, well, some of them are obviously better than others. Well, what about this one? Surely this one will work, right? Surely this one will work, right? Keep going. Absolutely keep going. 
until you either find a Trinitarian theory, which truly fits with Scripture and with other things that we know, or until you run out of Trinity theories and you say, wait a second, do we really need one of these? Does Scripture really require this? So I've tried to help. I hope what I've said is helpful. To me, it's not a contest of, you know, who's the smartest or who, uh, you know, gets the last word, anything like this. Trinitarian theorizing is a deadly serious business, and I've always taken it seriously. I still take it seriously, even though I think now it's wrong-headed in light of Scripture. So, to Chris Date, I say, God bless you as you keep going in your attempts to love God with all your mind. Clearly, you agree that God is worth thinking about. Keep going. This week's thinking music has been the track Arponauts by Eric Skiff. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.